Welcome to episode 119 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast. We're going to be doing some deep sky observing and Ophiuchus very shortly. And this is uh, our episode on deep sky observing and Ophiuchus. I'm Chris. Joining me is Shane. We are amateur astronomers who love looking up the nighttime sky. And this podcast is for anyone else who likes going out under the stars. Have you done much observing in Ophiuchus, Shane? I have not done a lot, so I'm actually quite excited for this episode. Um, yeah, I want to learn about some more objects in there. Uh, I've looked at some of the brighter things, but you know, I, I really haven't spent a lot of time uh, in Ophiuchus. Um, and you know, the timing is right. So normally, when we do these deep sky observing episodes, we you know we've covered multiple constellations, but I. I felt like we've just sort of grazed each one of those constellations in terms of what is uh, observable or, you know, what are, what is interesting. So I'm also excited that we're just going to zero in on this one. And it's kind of nice because you've done a lot of research on this for uh, a side project that you have going on. Yeah. So every year I write up uh, what's called a feature constellation. That's what its official name is. And the, our, 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 our secret project name, we call it the throwaway because we give it away for free. <laughs> and where does it get published? It gets published in the Royal Astronomical Society of Canada Observer Handbook, which you can buy or get as a member of the RASC, or you can actually download what we do as the feature alone for free at uh, rasc.ca under publications and under handbook. And if you go in there, you can go all the way back to 2012 and see uh, the past... Uh, uh, nine constellations starting with Origa and go through and, and see what we've done. Um, I love doing it. What it's meant to do is so the observer's handbook is an annual publication that comes out in the fall every year. I'll ask Society of Canada and it contains all kinds of information, uh, filter use, sunrise and sunset time, what to see in the sky, uh, every day of the year, just about, um, there's all kinds of, uh, sort of static information. Well, like we're talking a little about some observing lists. Well, those observing lists are in there every well, and they really don't. Um, double stars, carbon stars. You know, I, and I should say this. I was sort of embarrassed, but so I'm a uh, contributing author. I, I do a few sections. Our recent guest, Stella Kafka, is also a contributing author to that. And I didn't recognize the fact that we were on the same uh, list for publications for the Observer's Handbook. She does the double star section. Somebody else. Oh, really? Oh, that's uh, I. I never. Uh, to be honest, when I page through there, I, I often don't look at who wrote it. I just get into the content. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And uh, but I noticed when I got uh, I got an email a few days. It was just a few days after we published that episode with her, and I was like, "Wait a sec!" <laughs> like that's why her name was familiar. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> anyway. So. Uh, so every year, Randall and I, he's, he's coming on next week and he's the uh, past, um, he's the past chair of the history committee with the RASC, but he also is the creator or director. Anyway, we'll, we'll talk about next week of the, uh, of the Dorner Telescope Museum, mutual friend of ours, um, who's made some telescope donations here in Canada and there's, there's a bit of a telescope museum. And, uh, so that's really cool. Uh, but anyway, Randall does the. A lot of the graphics and the drawing and, and corrects me when I make egregious historical errors. And, 
and, and we kind of collaborate together on it. But this year, um, we decided to do Ophiuchus. So Shane, where does Ophiuchus, where does Ophiuchus uh, lay, lie? Where does Ophiuchus sit in the sky? Uh, it lies between Aquila, Serpens, Scorpius, Sagittarius, and Hercules, northwest mm. of the center of our home galaxy, the Milky Way. Yeah. So basically, the it's it's rising these nights, just just as it's getting dark, which here is not until about eleven o'clock these nights. Um, it's just rising in the southeast, and so uh, kind of follows Scorpius. So once once uh, Antares is above the horizon, um, then you can you can really start to more easily be able to zero in on on which stars are which um, up there in in off Eucas. So basically, uh, Sagittarius. And then uh, Scorpius are, are on the horizon, and then off Eucas sits sort of up and in between those. Um, so though we kind of think of it as, and it does extend a bit, um, a bit south. Um, so we do have to wait a bit for it to rise, and it's only well placed here for a couple months for the southerly part of off Eucas. Uh, it is a big constellation, and uh, and there's a there's a lot to see in it. So I should mention this as well. Um, you know, we're, we're not in horoscopes here or anything, but when I was born, the sun was in off Eucas, and it is the 13th sign. So take that for what it is. All right, noted. <laughs> <laughs> so why did we pick off Eucas this year? Well, I made the suggestion because off Eucas is often depicted as the god of medicine. <laughs> ah. and, this, and this is the year of the medicine in my mind anyway. <laughs> Yeah, if there was ever a year where we needed a god of medicines, it's probably now <laughs> exactly. <laughs> with the global pandemic. Yeah. Exactly. So Ophiuchus is depicted as a man grasping a serpent, and we have uh, serpents, kind of serpents kata and serpents kaput running on either side of Ophiuchus. And to the ancient Greeks, the constellation represented the son of the god of Apollo struggling with a huge snake. And anyway, that god killed the snake with his staff. And then another snake uh, had, had dropped dead, and, and they brought it back to life with some herbs. So he brought it back to life, and that's sort of how he became known as, uh, as, as this, this god of medicine. And then uh, business was really good. And, you know, that's not great if you're really into healing uh, when it comes to Greek gods, because, um, well, you know, you're, you're impacting their business of death, basically. And so uh, one of the other gods complained to Zeus, and he said, oh, well, we'll take care of it. We'll fix this problem. So he killed um, the god of medicine with a lightning bolt. And then, you know, kind of, you know, Apollo was kind of mad, so Zeus felt bad. So he put uh, the god of medicine in the sky off Eucas today. And that's why the, one of the medical symbols that people may, may be familiar with is a snake uh, wrapped around a bar, which is the staff. And uh, often it's two, I think two snakes involved uh, in the story there. So that's, that's where we come. I don't know what this constellation really, really looks like. It doesn't really look like anything much. Like how would you, <laughs> how would you describe what Ophiuchus looks like? Oh man, it's, uh, oof. It's weird. Like the, the central portion of it sort of reminds me of like maybe a tall two-story house that's kind of narrow um, or like uh, like a kind of a coffee percolator sort of thing. I don't know. It's <laughs> That's a good way to 
What a because you have the teapot of Sagittarius. Now we have the coffee percolator off. There we go. There we go. (laughs) I really like that. Actually, I'm totally distracted by that now. But uh, yeah, yeah. Get your caffeine fix in the sky. Move ahead. But that speaks to me. I'm a I'm a coffee dreamer. Anyhow, so so there's some bright stars. There's some bright stars in uh, in off Yucas. Lots of like second and third magnitude stars. So, so you can pick them out. Even from the city, you can see some of the stars. Our city too, too bright. Um, but there's no like first magnitude stars. That's why I say it's sort of a funny constellation in a way because there, there's lots of stars. Lots of stars you can see even from the city. They're not the brightest stars. But to kind of get you oriented to which stars you're looking at in the constellation pattern of the, of the great, uh, what did you call it? Coffee percolator? Um, let's call it a french press How about there that? you go there you yeah. go then then you really need to have like sort of some other stars around frame in which case like i think uh antares and some of those really bright percent stars uh in and around like constellations of uh, like the summer triangle even scorpius and sagittarius and hercules above it really kind of help uh to to guide you uh towards this pattern um so none of them crack the top 50 of the brightest stars. So in the observer's handbook, there's, there's a list of the top 50 stars. None of them are even that bright, but there are uh, a few that are worth uh, looking at. So the first one is right in the top of, of, uh, off you sort of forms that peak of the, the percolator or whatever. And it's a second magnitude star called that alpha off Uchus or Rassel Hul. And then there's Rassel Gethi, which is over the line up in the constellation of, of Hercules. But that's the brightest star, and it's right at the top there, so it can kind of be uh, a good place uh, to kind of start our, our little tour there. Do you ever look at Rassel Ghoul? I don't think so, other than uh, for star alignment for some EQ mounts, um, like in the, uh, the Celestron database of bright stars for alignment. I think that one comes up quite often. Yeah. I think it's actually a double star of some sort, but I'm I'm looking here. It must must I'm not sure how visible it is as a double star. I notice it's listed as an AB, but it doesn't uh, it doesn't split out in our uh, in our documentation here anyway for the handbook. So we won't talk about that. But first thing I'm going to focus on as far as what people can see once you find Russell Google, which is, which is that top right star, and it's sort of a star that you want to want to pick out because it will sort of help you to to draw the rest of the constellation. Um, below and to the left, otherwise known as southeast from Rassel Ghoul, um, there's this really interesting little pattern of stars. Now, from the city, um, you might not be able to see some of these stars because I think I think they're they're a little bit faint. I'm just going to look up and see 70 off you guy, um, which is fourth magnitude. It's just below and to the left there, and there's a pattern of of stars in this region, and it's actually a colander object. I think it's colander uh, 359. Uh, and, and anyway, this, this pattern of stars actually forms a, a region called Horus Poniatowski. Did you ever look at that? Mm, I don't think so. That does not ring a bell. So this, this area of the sky is, is in the realm of 70 off of you guy. 66, 67, and 68 off Yukai. And they form this almost looks like uh, a little Hyades cluster. Mm-hmm. And 
and the whole region is actually part of a of an open cluster. It's sort of sparse open cluster called Colander three fifty nine, and it's and it's big. It's several uh, degrees across, and uh, as such, like this is something you need a decent pair of wide field binoculars to see. If you go down, I have a little finder chart down below. Um, if you scroll down, you'll see sort of delineate with the, the Colander three fifty nine. And inside of that, so first of all, it's kind of neat to, to look at. And why do we call it Taurus Poniatowski? Well, it's a defunct constellation. It used to be called Taurus Poniatowski back, back in the day, but when the IAU made up the official boundaries in, in the 1920s, early 1930s, um, they, they included this as part of Ophiuchus proper now. But, but, uh, but back way back, it was, it was actually seen as, as its own little constellation and it's kind of a little pretty constellation and it turns out that that little group of stars that make a pretty uh a little constellation and a nice binocular object are actually part of a, a large open cluster and then i feel like i'm trying to sell people on this because sort of like those people haven't looked at. and then not only that but but for the low low price of anyway you get uh barnard star in there as well have you ever you, you've observed barnard star i'm gonna say that I'm not yes. sure if you remember observing it, but we observed yeah. it with Rick. Yeah, no, I do remember that um, down in Grasslands. As, uh, yeah. as that's probably one of the few. Well, I guess we were. Did Rick come to Old Man? And, no, he did, he wasn't there when you and I were at Old Man's back. No. Anyway, no. I digress. Uh, he, he so Barnard Star is uh, one of the fastest moving stars in our Milky Way galaxy. It's named after E.E. Uh, e. Barnard, American uh, astronomer who discovered it back, there, I think, around the turn of the 20th century. And he, uh, he noted the star, and then it turned out that the star was, uh, was moving really fast through space. And so now, now you can't see it as, as you watch. You're not going to see it moving. But over the course of decades, you'll actually see it move um, in and amongst those, those background stars. And right now, it's just off of 66 off you guy. And, uh, you're welcome to send out any of these, these charts, Shane. These are just finer charts that I made up myself from my software. Um, they're kind of ugly, but they do the trick. And you can actually see where Barnard Star is uh, is located there. It's around like about a nine or star. It's not really bright. You need a really good pair of binoculars or a small telescope to see it. Um, but when we were observing it with Rick, which I think was the last time we were down in Grasslands, um, observing together um, in 20. Uh, 2019 hard um but uh, rick's been observing it for decades and he had all these i remember this he had all these observations in like a like a binder but they weren't bound or anything and if i'm recalling correctly i think like a big gust of wind came and he had like all these observations going back decades like blowing around in the dark and you're kind of going around and stomping on them with our feet and stuff like that <laughs> save the records save the records so i actually asked him for some of those, and I think he's gonna he's gonna send some along, and I think we're gonna try to include them if if we can in the uh, in in the in the bit that we do uh, for this for this constellation. So, what else is here up in this up in this area? There's a star called X off Yukai. I thought you might be interested in X off Yukai because it's a variable star and it's a mirror type variable star. Oh. Goes goes from about magnitude six to magnitude nine point two. 
So I know you're you're looking at doing some variable stars. Shane, there's one you can observe. Yeah, that's a, that's a pretty big swing in magnitude as well. Yeah. So if it's Mira pulsating, then that's going to be kind of a reddish star, isn't it? I do not know. Yeah, I think it should be. I think it should. I haven't observed that one either, but uh, what I've what I've done, and I try to do this for, for my observing friends every year when we're getting ready for our, our dark sky observing in, in the early part of the summer, is make up some charts and some lists. And so now there you have it. You can go and observe X off Yukai. So then we also have up in the same region, we have uh, open cluster 6633. And that's just a little open cluster um, just to the east of course Poniatowski and Barnard Star region. Um, and it's in this beautiful bright band. So there's this band of the Milky Way. So the Milky Way is our home galaxy. And one of the reasons why I like this region uh, up by Taurus Poniatowski, which is just, uh, just to the southeast of Russell Ghoul, is that from a dark site, there's actually this band that comes down and kind of more or less terminates in the area. And it's got these bright open clusters in it, like 6633, NGC 6572, and then the really bright, uh, known as the Summer Beehive, IC4665. Um, and these are just like really bright open clusters. And from really dark sites, you can actually see them with your eye. And uh, if not, you, you from a decent dark site, you can, you can take your binoculars, even just a small uh, six or seven power, power pair of binoculars, will start to show them from, uh, you know, from, from even that kind of sky with, uh, you know, as, as open clusters in, in the area. Yeah, I'm just trying to hop ahead here. There's also a globular cluster called, and I don't think I've observed, no, I have observed this one. It's been a long time though. 6426 is a globular cluster in this region. I was going to say, I remember I observed that with my 80 millimeter triplet when I first uh, moved to Ontario and we were observing just outside of, uh, of a place called Moncton, <laughs> Ontario. And we would, uh, we were up there one night and I decided I was going to look at all the globular clusters and off Yucas. And I, I remember I looked at, uh, 6426. I can't remember. I don't think I put much power on it. So this time I'm going to go back and I'm going to, going to go back prepared. But did you know there's a galaxy up there too? No, no, I didn't. Almost like right below off Yucas, uh, sorry, right below Russell Gould, which is in the top of off Yucas, yep. which is in the yep. top of the uh, the coffee percolator you were talking about, is NGC six three eight four, and there's not a lot of galaxies that you can see uh, at at sort of this time of year once once you're into the summer Milky Way, uh, but this is a, a barred spiral. It's about seventy seven million million light years away, and so it's kind of neat to actually sort of mix in uh, a galaxy into your sort of summer uh, constellation observing. What magnitude is that? Do you know offhand? Yeah, so that's going to be about 10th magnitude. So it's not really bright. It might be a bit of a stretch in the three inch. So everything else so far is something you can see in binoculars. But yeah, this one is a, is a little bit fainter. And I remember when I was trying to hunt it down with my 80 millimeter, I couldn't, I couldn't get it. Um, so we're at about a magnitude six site and I, I couldn't quite get it or wasn't sure of it. Um, and then my friend had an eight inch Dobsonian Newtonian reflector and he was able to get it uh, pretty easily in that telescope. So, so we took a look. All right. 
So moving along, where shall we go next, Shane? I've got some charts in here. What uh, I got so many things in here that you almost need to tell me what strikes your interest. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I'm uh, I'm always uh, always interested in uh, double stars, um, just because it's so easy to do those from my backyard. So that yeah, those always have a soft spot in my heart. All right. So what double stars are here? Well. What There's, do we have on the list here? We've got Lambda off of you guys. We got 36 off of you guys. 36 off of you guys. Pretty huh. I don't think I've looked at any of them. So Lambda off of you guys is, uh, is uh, on the far westerly side. Now, I've never looked at that either, but it's, it's listed as having um, two components, um, 4.2 and... 5.2 and they're only uh i think it's like an arc minute apart or something like that it says difficult anyway this is what the observer's handbook says it's difficult to separate haven't looked at them so much and then there's 36 uh, for you kai now where is that on my chart so 36 off you i think is is a little bit down in the uh in the southern part of the constellation and like i said we'll we'll put this uh this chart that i've that I've worked up into, into our notes. But what's neat about 36 off UK is that it's a, it's a triple system and all three components are orange stars. And in, uh, I think it was in, uh, in Frank Herbert's Dune, they, they talk about planets orbiting 36 off UK. And then there's Tau off UK and then 70 off UK, which I think is probably uh, well, that's the one that I referred to earlier up in the uh, up in the region by by Taurus Poniatowski or right in Taurus Poniatowski, that little little Hyades type pattern, and I think that's probably one of the more interesting ones uh, for you to take a look at if you want to take a look at some some double stars there. I'm gonna, yeah, I'm just I'm looking at Lambda Ophiuchi, and uh, yeah, that would be that's an interesting one. That'll be very challenging with just one arc second of separation. Oh, is that is it an arc second or an arc minute? I guess it must be an arc it, second. Arc it is an arc second. An arc minute yeah. would be very easy to separate. Yeah, that's what um, I was thinking. Yeah, 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 yeah. That uh, it's interesting because the system itself is is visible naked eye, um, mm -hmm. like you know, with a um, a combined magnitude of just a just under four, three point eight. It looks like mm -hmm. um, interesting system. I'll definitely check that out. Yeah, I kind of got to finish writing. This. So these we're just working from my rough notes, which are what uh, what we use to actually go out and and do the observations. So what I, what I do is I make up a list. We've got uh, I think it ended up being forty seven different things to look at. Nineteen stars, going to have uh, ten globular clusters. That galaxy talked about. There's a couple planetary nebula, some open clusters, dark eleven dark nebula, and two complexes or complexes, an asterism, which is the Taurus Poniatowski. And an H2 region. So maybe we'll go, where shall we go next? You know, what I want to do is talk about sort of an order of, of maybe, uh, yeah, we'll just start on the east side. We'll talk about Rho off Yukai, which Rho off Yukai is, is, uh, is an interesting star. So it's this, this group of stars. I don't know if they're related or not, but it's three stars. Do you ever look at Rho off Yukai before? I don't think so. Like, I really have not spent much time here, and that's a big miss on my part. So I'm looking forward to working through this uh, this summer. Yeah. So you probably have, 
because you've observed me lots in the summer. And, and this is where I spend a lot of my time observing, especially with my refractors and five inch and such. And when I was specking out my, my little telescopes, I always make sure that I can take in this region around Rho off Yukai because um, it's got a whole bunch of basically nebulosity, globular clusters, open cluster areas, and dark nebula all packed into this region. Now, they're very, very subtle, and you need a super dark sky to see them. But Rho off Yukai and the Rho off Yukai nebula are... Um, around the star in sort of the most southerly, uh, sort of southwesterly region. In fact, they're, they're right on the border with that dominant area in Scorpio. So right around that Antares region. And it's sort of one of those things where if you talk about Ophiuchus, it seems like, well, it's only got this one star there, and it's called this, this Ophiuchi uh, nebula region. And that, that nebula kind of bleeds or, or overlaps or goes over the border into Scorpius. And then when you talk about Scorpius, you talk about that Antares region, but uh, this whole sort of complex uh, bridged over the border and it's actually named off Yucca's region. So where does it lie? Last year we did uh, Scorpius for our feature concept and this year we do off Yucca's. And I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to sort of rip the bandit off. I'm going to sort of maybe maybe double up on my efforts on there. I might have a little bit of overlap. But um, I spent a long time observing this. And in fact, I've observed this, I think, with, with more instruments than just about any uh, other object. So what do we got? Well, we got a series of, of three stars that are around Roafucus, which is just about, I think it's about two and a half or three degrees to the north um, west of Antares. So this is a really easy region to find, first of all. And there's a lot of stuff there it's just a little bit difficult to see some of this. You need a really dark sight. And so Rafucus itself is these three stars, and it's got this um, nebula around it. Now, it's difficult as heck to see, but some people have seen it with instruments as small as like 10 by 50 binoculars. And certainly when Mike and I have been observing some nights with dark sights um, using his 15 by 50 Canon image stabilized binoculars, we've been able to see traces of the nebula in and around the area. The nebula is challenging because it doesn't respond well. First of all, it's very low on our horizon anyway, and it doesn't respond well using nebula filters. Mm -hmm. So it's best to use just uh, some decent low power. Um, and it's almost like aperture doesn't really help. In fact, I've seen the Marofuki nebula itself um, no more easily or no more difficult in my five-inch refractor than in a 17-inch telescope that, that I used to have access to uh, back east. So it's, it's difficult to see, but it's, it's this beautiful um, sort of cobweb structure that's kind of stretched uh, over the region. And then if you have this nice low power wide field um, and you're looking at the region, well, just to the right or just to the west of Antares is M4, the big globular cluster, famous summertime globular cluster. And then just above and Terry's is a small little globular cluster called NGC 6144. So you got these, these uh, globular clusters and then you have all this nebulosity. And just right above Antares itself, just sort of, uh, again, just to the left of this little globular, is a reasonably bright star called 22 Scorpius. And from and it almost appears, but from 22 Scorpius, from really dark sight, there's a dark lane that runs out called Barnard 44. B44. I don't know if you've ever seen that. It's actually in your photo on the on the actual astronomy webpage. You've 
mm. think you captured that uh, a little bit of that region in that dark nebula. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, definitely did. So moving to the moving to the east, there is that prancing horse nebula, and you actually have that. That's actually sort of our photo that you took for, uh, or that that we use anyway. You you taken the photo for the actual astronomy podcast there, and you can actually see that on the uh, on the actual astronomy webpage is that dark prancing horse. Have you been able to see that with your unaided eye or just, just in photos? Well, definitely with the unaided eye too. Not like a photo definitely creates the boundaries of that far more distinctly. But, um, you know, in grasslands, uh, have been able to make out uh, that dark nebula naked eye. Yep. Yeah, it's not, uh, it's not overly challenging, you know, from, and once you see it, it's one of those things, once you see it, then you can see it from, from lesser skies. Like I remember when I lived in Southwest Ontario, um, you know, I, from, from our good site, I could, I could see that. I thought fairly easily, but then, uh, a lot of the observers that, that I observed with there, they'd never been to like super dark skies before. And, uh, they had lots of observing experience, but they'd never been able, they'd never seen it from, from like an ultra dark site. And so they, they never could seem to be able to pick it out no matter what I did. Um, which is kind of funny. Cause I, I thought like in some ways they, they were better observers than I was. But, uh, but it's sort of one of those things where once you do get to a dark site and you kind of sort of go back to a site that's maybe not quite as good, you will definitely be able to, to pick it up. But the main region in this uh, dark prancing horse, well, first of all, it kind of looks like a horse and this shouldn't be confused with the horse head. It's one of those funny things. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think it, you know, some people do uh, get kind of twisted up uh, in, in those two and they're very different. Um, but what's interesting is they are both dark nebula. Yeah. So what are what are the dark nebula exactly? So so really, there's two major classifications: bright nebula and dark. Bright emit light, um, or they're visible with uh, within the light spectrum. Whereas dark nebula do not emit any light. In fact, they block light. So it's a uh, it's it's like dust and, and gas in space that is between us and background stars. So yeah. it just appears as a dark region um, in and amongst stars. And there's a lot of dark nebula up in the sky. It's easier to observe when you're in a star-rich area, like the center of our galaxy. Yeah. And this this area here, and the area that we're talking about is around a star called Theta off Yuki or off Yuki. And, and this, this dark prancing horse seems to wrap around it. Now, the name itself I think Alan Whitman, who who writes for Sky and Telescope um, as as a deep sky author, I think he's the one that actually came up with that name. He was the first person I ever heard uh, of of it called that, and I think we discussed that over over a beverage one night. Um, and it's uh, it's dominated by this large dark pool called B seventy eight, which is just southeast of Theta Ophiuchi, and then there's this this pipe. Uh, it's called this, the, the pipe or the pipe and stem. And so that's kind of like the pipe bowl. And then the stem extends towards um, Antares, basically. And, and it, it pools out after about four or five degrees into uh, a dark nebula called uh, Barnard 59. And Barnard, uh, again, being the gentleman who, who discovered uh, many of these dark nebulas uh, in the region. So that's definitely the easiest thing to pull out. And I know from 
from somewhat light blue to darkish skies, I can typically always see the pipe. The, the rest of that nebula really, I think, requires quite, quite decent dark skies um, to see. But uh, you might be able to pull out the pipe with your unaided eye first and then see the rest. But through binoculars, if you have like a good wide-field pair of 7 by 35 binoculars, you should be able to, to see the entire uh, like horse head or the horse uh, prancing horse region. Uh, not to be confused with the horse head. So one of the one of the things with dark nebulas, though, is that the horse head up in Orion tends to be, um, I, I think, about the most famous, if not the most famous, dark nebula, uh, which is kind of unfortunate because it's pretty challenging to see. Have you ever seen the horse head nebula up in up in Orion? No, I've. You know, it's funny. I've wanted to try for that for a long, long time, and the issue for me is I just don't. I don't take the time in the winter to pack things up to go to a dark location to actually observe that. And, yeah. you know, I really need to make that the priority for this upcoming winter. Um, Cause I really want to see it and I, I still haven't. So it, it's really famous because it just looks like this horse head, like it's uncanny how much it looks like a horse's head. And it's also in, in a really rich nebular region uh, just off of Zeta Orion, which is the left star in the, the belt of Orion. However, the horse head is just, ridiculously hard to see <laughs> and mm-hmm. i've seen it a couple times i've seen it two or three times in in different telescopes and it's it's difficult um definitely can't see it in binoculars and five inch telescope just can barely see it from the darkest sites but the, this region here these dark nebula this dark prancing horse um this is a binocular uh object a and b like you said you know in the winter when you're trying to hunt something like that well it's going to be cold, uncomfortable, or you know, different different things. Um, but this is like warm weather, and it's you know, just nice summer stargazing, and you you can see this just with a pair of uh, binoculars, really. Yeah, um, much much more accessible than cold winter time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, exactly. So, kind of kind of moving up and to the right, I'm going to talk about. Uh, uh, Zeta Ophiuchi for for a quick second. We mentioned uh, V Ophiuchi. Now maybe I'll I'll go here first. But one of the other things that we see a lot of, we talked about a, a couple globular clusters so far. I talked about uh, Messier four, which is globular cluster to the uh, west of Antares. Talked about six one four four, which is just northwest of Antares. Um, there's tons of other globular clusters like in and around the um in and around the the prancing horse or dark horse um you also have the open cloud or the globular the clusters messier 19 we have messier 62 we have messier 9 um and i think there's a couple other ones in there too that 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 i'm missing um but they're all in and around this region and i also want to mention uh that with these globular clusters they're fairly bright um, you know, typically they're, they're landing in sort of that eighth, ninth magnitude zone. So great objects for little telescopes and they handle power pretty high. You've, you've hunted down all these globular clusters, Shane. I think I've looked at some of them through your telescope. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh it's a beautiful area of the sky. It is, you know, quite rich with, um, with all sorts of stuff and it's, uh, it's fun to just pan through there and, and soak it all up. I'm trying to, this is like one of my favorite regions and I'm trying to watch, watch my time here as we talk, but uh, I also mentioned this is just 
just above and to the right of the of the uh, of the B semi, the bowl of that that pipe in that dark horse is a tiny little nebula. Again, it always seems like the most uh, famous dark nebulas are the most difficult to see. So, kind of almost like the equivalent of of a of the winter horse head, but in this region would be the snake nebula, which is just um, just above Theta of Yukai itself. And what this looks like, it looks like this S pattern cut through the, the star clouds in astrophotos. Um, and it's very dark um, and reasonably small. So I really want to see this sort of like one of those challenge objects. And uh, I guess this was about eight or nine years ago when we were down at one of our dark sky sites. I, I did hunt this one down and wow, it was so difficult to see. It took me uh, like, I feel like it was half the evening to try to hunt it down and observe it. Do you, I think I showed that to you. Do you remember that it was, it was tough though. I think people were looking at my scope saying there's nothing there. Kind of thing. Yeah. But, yeah. That, that does. Uh, I do remember that. Yes. It was, uh, it was challenging. Yeah. It's, it's really one of those things where the, uh, the joy is in the, is in the success of the hunt, not in what you see once, once you make the hunt. So so I'd hunted it up and then uh, actually referring back to Alan Whitman again, actually sent him my observation. I can't remember whether I was talking to him and I just told him I saw it um, because we were talking about it for one reason or another. And then um, he actually asked for my observation. And then uh, one of my, I think it's my only observations ever published in Sky and Telescope magazine. Really proud of that. So it was kind of cool. Yeah. All right. Now I'm going to go back up to, to Zeta off you kai i know we're starting to get a little bit low on time so um i gotta i gotta mention this. this is one of those things i didn't think i didn't think there was anything here i was observing zeta off you one night and um i had looked at some i think they're like hydrogen alpha photos of this region and uh, i'd never seen anything like this before but there's this huge nebula around uh zeta off you and sort of in that region of the sky, which is just above, sort of sitting between sort of Zeta and Messier 107 and V off Yukai, and extending almost all the way up to uh, Yed uh, Posterior, which is in sort of the, the uh, you know, the right-hand side or, or the westerly side of off Yukas here, is this huge nebula called Sharpless 2-27. And... Um, so I thought, hmm, I wonder if that's actually visible to see. I'd never heard of anybody observing that before. And so uh, using my five-inch telescope, I was able to uh, able to hunt that down. Um, I ended up having to use like a filter. Like I thought without a filter, I kind of sort of see it. And then I got this really subtle uh, nebula filter that just barely cuts out like the background sky. I think it's called an IR cut. It's more like an astrophoto filter. And it doesn't really cut very much of the sky glow at all. But, but basically, it just takes out some of the starlight, gives just enough contrast. So you can actually start to see um, this nebula around that region. Do you remember? We observed, I think I showed that to you a couple of times. Do you remember? It's very subtle. You might, you might. Yeah. Yeah. That's another one of those ones where, you know, <laughs> you have to kind of prepare yourself mentally, I think, before you go to the eyepiece. Yeah. Uh, that you're not going to see something that will slap you in the face, that you'll have to kind of work for it, you know, where, We've described some of the techniques in the past, like maybe you tap the telescope or use your peripheral vision. Um, some of these objects just do not, you know, they, they, they do not scream at you that they're there. Yeah. And maybe we'll, we'll sort of uh, start wrapping it up here and I'll, I'll wrap up on, on an easier note. There's, 
And, th- and this probably is where some people may wish to start, uh, but I'm going to end here. <laughs> but there's, there's a string of globular clusters that cut through, and they're very similar, um, at least you know in small telescopes anyway. Um, there's this string of globular clusters that kind of almost spans like the breadth of, uh, of Ophiuchus sort of on the, on the Western side, uh, we have Messier 12, um, and it's just West of center. And then almost right in the middle of, uh, of your, your coffee decanter or whatever you call the chain is, <laughs> is Messier 10. And it's just, it's, there's not much else in the region. There's some faint background stars, but these two globular clusters are there. And if you have uh, a nice, uh, good set of like 10 by 50 binoculars or something. I know you can see them from a decent sky, even from my, from my backyard. I think you can pick them up in a 10 by 50. And then uh, further over, sort of just below that, of course, Poniatowski, uh, an asterism, talking about where Barnard Star is at, at the start, uh, just south of there is, is Messier 14. And it's kind of, it's like a region of these these globular clusters in dark nebula that are that are all in amongst this area. It's really really a neat, uh, neat spot there. So I know I put a lot of notes in here, Shane. I wasn't sure if there was anything uh, that really uh, piqued your interest to see. Well, uh, there's quite a few things in here that are like what, what I like about this list is there's a number of things that you can observe in this constellation, um, but but it also like will accommodate whatever situation you're in. So mm-hmm. for example, if you're in the city or under light polluted skies, there's a number of things on here that you can observe. Yeah. Uh, if you have the opportunity to get out to a darker location, it changes the, 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 the list completely changes. There's so much, you know, uh, dark sky objects within this constellation. Um, and, and like of all varying, um, I don't know how to put this, but like levels of challenge or yeah. um, just, in, in in terms of the eclecticness of the objects, like there's just so much to see that is you know so different. Um, like uh, I love it. You know, um, you know, carbon stars is something else, and I'm, I'm really starting to gain an appreciation for. Um, so I'm excited to to really explore Ophucus uh, <laughs> this summer, and uh, I don't know, soak up as much of this as we can. I know in the past, like when you've written these focused uh, constellation articles. It's been fun to just spend the entire night in one constellation. You know, mm-hmm. you don't have to like adjust your chair. Um, it's just very easy observing when you're just nudging the telescope slightly around a, con- a constellation to take in a whole bunch of different objects. And, you know, if you have the luxury of observing with some friends that have different apertures, that is also pretty cool when you can, you know, look at the same object through different apertures to appreciate it in different ways. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's sort of one of those things because I've been doing this for a while. And typically when I, when I started doing these sort of like how, I, how I envision everything working out with astronomy is, is like the opposite actually ends up being the way it works out. So when I originally would do these, I would strike out absolutely on my own and I would go to a dark sky site by myself for two or three nights. And I would, I would work through all this stuff. And it was, it was almost like work and, and, but you know, I was trying to do it with this goal in mind. Um, and then, uh, what I began doing just, just for the, well, what happened was, um, we were having some poor weather, um, for a couple of years. And then I was just sort of bringing these down with, with, with me, uh, when we were doing our sessions and I was kind of floating out some of the objects to you guys. And then the past few years I've kind of like, oh, well, I'll just make, cause you guys seem to really enjoy it. So then I was like, well, I'll just give you guys the notes. So we're just working from very rough notes here, but 
it, it's kind of like uh, sort of like treasures because I just kind of go through and say, well, here's here's the brightest stars, here's the the double stars, um, and I, I they're incomplete. Some of them I have the separation, some of them I don't. I've made some errors in this that you know will be corrected as we go through and observe them. Um, we don't really know what we're gonna what we're gonna see in here. Some of the stuff I have observed before, and some of the stuff I've never seen before. So. You know, sort of the more challenging things are are the things that that I've observed and and are in uh, are in you know the RESC observers handbook already. Um, but then some of the stuff like the carbon stars and variable stars and uh, a couple of the uh, globular clusters and and you know maybe one or two of the open clusters in here I, I haven't seen before. So you know it's it's kind of an interesting way to sort of explore a region of the sky which which I actually felt like I was almost most familiar with as far as summer constellations. And I went through and I'm like hmm. Out of the forty-seven things here, I listed to take a look at. I think I've I've only looked at twenty-seven of them, or something like that. So, should be a good time. Yeah, you know, and and this this method of observing is one that is appealing to me more and more. Uh, rather than working my way through a list, I just like to soak in or, or like observe everything that I can within the constellation. Uh, yeah, again, because it's easy, and I think you just. Uh, it's another way to learn the sky, you know, like there's, there's different layers to it or levels, you know, learning the sky, I think starts off for most people is just figuring out where the constellations are and what their names are, um, maybe evolves into identifying the names of the brighter stars. Um, but then, you know, the next layer, uh, at least, you know, in my opinion, is then within the constellation, you know, where multiple objects are to observe. And you get to the point after doing this long enough where you don't even need the uh, the star charts anymore. You just yeah. know where you know M10 and M12 are, and yeah. where NGC 6384 is within the constellation. Yeah. And when you get to that level, it it just it, it to me I, it it brings another level of enjoyment because you just don't need the paper. You just start using the instrument and like your telescope or your binoculars, and uh, you're just navigating. Uh, to where you want to go because you know uh, where the objects uh, lie. So, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm I'm really excited to get started on this. Of course, I I finished this up when we were having some clear skies, but it was it was a very cold spring here for a while. And now now that it's warmed up, the skies have gone all junky on me. So now now that I have my my observing all kind of before me, I'm ready to go and 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 the equipment uh, set up and ready to go. Uh, now I I just need to wait for the skies, but yeah, it'd be great if if you can uh, combine. We can head out in, into the fields and uh, and at least start uh, start picking away on some of this. And then definitely some of this we're going to need to get dark skies to see for sure. So we're going to be we're going to be heading out camping. I guess. Yeah, yeah. Looking forward to all of that. All right. Well, sounds good, Shane. Anything else to add? No, that's it, Chris. Thank you. All right. Well, thanks so much, and thanks everybody for listening. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and we hope you enjoyed the show. If you are interested in more information, would like to contact us, or if you would like to support the podcast, check out our website, actualastronomy.com.